3: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. And yeah, I don't do this normally, but um, I feel obligated to do this. If you're in Georgia right now, uh, heavy rain in North Georgia. It has blown out of the Rome and, and the Dalton area. It's just moved out of the Pickens County area. But uh, man, if you were over in the Clarksville area, uh, you're in Helen, you're in... Clayton or Hiawassee, or my goodness, uh, even the Gainesville area and the Athens area, you're going to get smacked with some rain. Uh, The further north you go, the heavier it's going to be really heavy in Dahlonega right now, Uh, but this is pushing through. Temperatures will be going back down. That's all I need to say about that. Also, you need to know uh, that the best principal in America is in Georgia, Uh, the, uh, Carinsa Wing, she is the principal at Collins Hill High School in Gwinnett County. And she has been named the 2020 National Association of Secondary School Principals of the year. She beat every other nominated principal in the country. Congratulations to her. Well done. Uh, in Chesapeake, Virginia. This is genuine, and and, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time, uh, talking about prostatots and Halloween this year. My kids thankfully are, are phasing out of the desire to go trick or treating. Um, they want to stay home. We have so many people in our neighborhood who come through trick or treating every year. Uh, we, we gave away several hundred dollars worth of candy last year and ran out. Uh, and we weren't just handing big handfuls of candy. We had a ton of kids, um, Thousands of kids come through our neighborhood because we live right off the interstate in a planned neighborhood. And uh, there's one way in, one way out, and a bunch of people come through on Halloween. And uh, we assume this will happen again this year. And one of the, the, the worst parts of Halloween is the, the prostituting of our children more and more in Halloween costumes. You, you want to go as the girls in particular want to go as a particular character. And the only characters they have are slutted up. It is absolutely obscene. The way the Hollywood, and not just Hollywood, but the costume industry wants our daughters to dress up. And unfortunately, there aren't enough dads out there saying this is unacceptable. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. Um, I, I, I could actually do an entire tirade on this. I want. That leads me, however, to Chesapeake, Virginia. This is truly bizarre. Uh, Chesapeake, Virginia has made it a crime. ...to go trick-or-treating over the age of 12. It is also a crime in Chesapeake, Virginia... ...to trick-or-treat after 8 p.m. You will be fined uh, up to $100... ...if you are over 12 years old in trick-or-treating. You could spend up to 6 months in jail... ...if you are over 12 and trick-or-treating in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, You could also spend up to 30 days in jail if you trick-or-treat after 8 p.m., as well as a $100 fine. <laughs> uh, uh, listen, I, I am I am all about cracking down on aggressive trick-or-treating and things like that, but aren't there bigger problems in life than jailing a 13-year-old for six months because he knocked on someone's door and asked for candy? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, he shows up at 8.01 p.m. They're like, uh, you've got to be in jail for... 6 months for one and we're not going to run concurrent sentences so you got to be in for another 30 days. So 7 months in jail for you, sonny. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Um I want to spend some time this morning on mythologies. Uh myths, the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. That that essentially is what mythology is. Mythology is um, it, typically they belong to a religious or cultural tradition. Uh, a myth is a, an explanation essentially for the way the world works, uh, stories of humans, uh, leaders, um, of legendary characters, I- explaining things that, on how the world works. So for example, the ancient Greeks believed that, uh, the goddess of the harvest was named Demeter. And Demeter was one of the children of Kronos. She was a sister of Zeus and she had a daughter named Persephone and Persephone was married off to Zeus's brother, Hades, real incestuous relationship. These Greeks were in and the way the ancient Greeks explained the seasons was that uh, Persephone was allowed to come up uh, out of hell for the spring and the summer and Demeter, goddess of the harvest, would allow things to bloom and grow green. And as the time came for Persephone to descend back again into hell, uh, things would begin to die off. And ultimately, in her descent into hell, things would completely die off. And uh, that explained the seasons, that, that Demeter was upset and then rejoicing as her daughter cyclically did this. And, of course, there were some people in, in the later centuries, or really, we're talking to the last 300 years, who said, oh, maybe this is where the story of Jesus comes from, um, dies in the grave and comes back. Not really. There, there's no, no correlation that we can find anywhere in ancient history. Um, there have been some later in 12th and 13th century histories uh, trying to tie uh, Osiris uh, from Egyptian mythology into uh, the story of Jesus being born and, and died and resurrected. Uh, But that's all actually came about in the 18 and 1900s, these comparisons, and uh, they didn't even really take shape until the 12th and 1300s based on some mistranslations of hieroglyphics. So that's not really true either. Um, There are a lot of atheists who will say that Christianity is mythology, that uh, there was no ark that that's a mythological story, although we know that something had to have happened because pretty consistently through ancient history uh, there are studies of great floods. Uh, and There are stories of... Um men a man with family on big boat with animals uh wading through water. So clearly that story had to come from somewhere because it is so tied into mythological stories uh globally there there clearly at some point had to be a a massive flood with a man on a boat. We know it comes from somewhere. uh the Jews and Christians say it comes from scripture that it was Noah. um so but there are mythological stories of the creation of the universe. there are mythological stories of the. Uh, of how things work on the planet, of uh, there are mythological stories of the greening of the grass, there are mythological stories of what the wind is, mythological stories of how the sun moves across the sky in the day. Um, It's what people do to explain life. And in politics, there are mythological stories. People on the right tell themselves stories. People on the left tell themselves stories. Uh, it, it, as a way to explain things. And I've got to tell you, I'm sure there are people on the left who can tell me there are mythological stories on the right. In fact, they believe that tax cuts stimulating the economy are a myth, are a myth told by the right. That's not true. We know there's plenty of evidence, economic evidence out there that tax cuts stimulate the economy. But what about the myths the left, ser- the left tells themselves? Uh, Donald Trump didn't win. Hillary Clinton didn't lose. The Russians stole the election. What about that? Or there's this latest one that the rich pay less in taxes than the poor. This has circulated for some time. You know, Warren Buffett has pointed this out uh, on numerous occasions that he pays more, or his secretary pays more than him in taxes. And that's not actually true. And, And the argument Buffett was actually going for is that he pays a smaller tax rate. Buffett makes his money largely by the selling of stock. That's how he generates his income. He may get paid a dollar a year, but he makes millions on dividends and, and other things, and that money is taxed because it is capital, and the government prizes, values capital, and the government wants to make sure that capital is used uh, efficiently so that it can be poured back into the economy. The government taxes capital less than it does income. So, Warren Buffett's secretary may pay a 30% tax rate on her income, which Warren Buffett would as well if he met that much. And, and Warren Buffett only pays 15% on his capital gains. But. Warren Buffett uh, is paying taxes on millions of dollars and his secretary's not, so he still pays more money. Uh, but the left has twisted this into their mythology that this is another evidence of the rich paying less uh, than taxes. Well, we've got this shaping up as well in this new claim that's out that somehow or another – uh, the rich actually pay less in taxes overall. The 400 billionaires in this country pay less in taxes. Uh, MSNBC is peddling this story, and the reason they're doing it is because it's become a central part of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Elizabeth Warren wants to argue that the wealthy aren't paying their fair share in this country, their fair share. Now, who determines their fair share and what is fair? Well, that's the mob through the government. And it's based on jealousy. The entire policy is based on jealousy. And she's got several economists from Berkeley who are out there peddling these studies for her, showing that the wealthy pay less than the poor and we need a wealth tax. Here they Katie Turr interviewing Gabriel Zuckman, one of these professors, on MSNBC.
1: Gabriel, let's let's talk about that. Um, Germany, Sweden, the
4: Netherlands, and Austria all abandoned their wealth tax. Does this does this version of it, this worn version of it, address the, the problems in Europe?
5: Yes. You know, look, taxes are neither bound to fail or to succeed. You know, tax avoidance, tax evasion, tax competition, these are not laws of nature. These are choices that we make. Sometimes governments choose to let tax avoidance fester and they choose tax competition. That's what the European countries did. But the U.S. can make other choices, and the U.S. can learn from the European experience. And the, the Warren Wealth Tax, for instance, learns from that experience. It starts much higher in the wealth distribution, 50 million, in, the, in Europe it was 1 million. It has no exemptions, no deductions whatsoever. It comes with much more funding for the IRS to make sure that tax evasion uh, is limited. And you know the difference between the U.S. and Europe is, in Europe, if I'm French and I move to London, I don't have to pay taxes anymore in France. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., if you're an American citizen, even if you move abroad, I know. you still have to pay taxes I know in the U.S. Well. <laughs> so that's a big difference. That means yeah. you don't have this problem of tax competition. That was the key reason why European countries, many of them, abandoned their uh, wealth taxes.
2: So they time.
1: saw people just leaving those countries going to better tax havens, exactly. tax places.
5: Exactly. But the U.S. is not in that situation.
2: Well, and it's somewhat different in Europe as well, because in Europe, uh, they're now treated very much like states under the European Union. And when you move from California to Texas, you no longer pay California taxes in Texas. He, he misses that. Uh, but th- this conversation went on in notice of, well, Elizabeth Warren getting tax advice from a european from a frenchman it sounds like
1: john why is this a new idea now why is this not something that had been discussed beforehand
3: well it's become uh, a prominent idea now because there's so much focus on the widening uh gap between rich and poor in the united states and the way our economy has evolved toward greater and greater levels of income inequality now there are valid objections to the wealth tax and you hear that from people like larry summers who uh, the former uh, Treasury Secretary and National Economic Council Director under President Obama uh, arguments that. There are measurement problems that it is difficult to come up with an estimate every year. There'll be a lot of tax evasion. When I interviewed Andrew Yang, the Democratic uh, presidential candidate, a couple of weeks ago, he said, "In practice, it will be anywhere from problematic to a disaster." But the reason it's coming up now, and well, Bernie Sanders, of course, has a uh, wealth tax which is higher than Elizabeth Warren's, is because there's so much frustration among uh, middle and working-class people who have not been able to get ahead in this economy, and they've seen people uh, at the top doing a whole lot better.
2: See, a- again, this is pretty much an admission that it is premised on jealousy and it won't work. Here's what you need to know about uh, this: these economists who are helping Elizabeth Warren do this. Uh, their data is wrong uh, because one of the things that they've done in their plan and, and in the book that's come out to justify all of this is that they – ignore government subsidy. So for example, uh, if you are listening to me right now, you are a senior citizen and you get social security, then you are, that money is not attributed to you as income. So your income in their calculations look less than it actually is, even though you would consider your social security check income. So for example, you get a thousand dollars in monthly income. And on top of that, you get $9,000 in government assistance, social security, disability, uh, welfare, what have you. So you you actually have $10,000. Well, they ignore the $9,000 of your income. So let's say you pay $500 in sales tax. This is one of the other problems is they treat sales tax uh, as a tax on you and as attributable only to your real income, not your government assistance income. So they would say that you who makes $10,000 and pays $500 in sales tax in a year that you pay 50% of your income in taxes. Now, why? How? how $500 is not 50% of, of $10,000. Nope. It's not 50% of the $9,000 in government subsidy. It's, it's 50% of the $1,000 that you yourself generated without government assistance. That, that's how they get the number uh, that the, the, um, that low-income earners pay more than the rich. Another thing that they do is they attribute, for example, corporate taxes to shareholders. Now, this is very important because a lot of poor and middle-class people do on mutual funds and, and do so differently from rich people. Well, they attribute the taxes paid by corporations Directly to the shareholder. So, if you've got a 401k and it owns shares in Walmart, for example, uh, the taxes that Walmart pays are attributed to you by virtue of your ownership of a mutual fund. That's how they calculate this. Now, uh, there are plenty of economists out there who have debunked this stuff in the last couple of weeks, but MSNBC and the left continue to push this stuff as a narrative, as a mythology of injustice and inequality in the United States. And they're trying to shape public policy based on this mythology that somehow the rich are getting away with all sorts of stuff in this country. And in large part, this is all to defend Elizabeth Warren who wants a massive new tax on the rich. Welcome back. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to spend a little bit of time this morning and this hour talking about the mythologies the left tells themselves really to keep themselves going right now. Uh, One of the mythologies that the left, well, certain aspects of the left these days are telling themselves is that... The Russians are stealing the election, and it really is polluting the Democrats. We had the Mueller report now. The Mueller report shows that, yes, the Russians—and this is inarguably a fact— the Russians did try to interfere in the American electoral process. And and before you say, well, we do it too— uh, no, we, we don't do it in this way. The, the Americans have always been very, very open with candidates they prefer, whether it's Barack Obama or uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it's It's open. It's transparent. It's not some sort of subversive effort. Uh, to create memes on the internet and convince people of things we haven't done that, the Russians have, we might as well acknowledge the Russians have, and I think we should all be able to agree that it's bad Um, the the Mueller report clearly shows the Russians did try to interfere with the election, but the Mueller report shows there's no evidence they were successful, and it shows there is no evidence that uh, they collaborated with Donald Trump, in fact it shows quite the opposite, Uh, the Trump campaign did not collaborate with the Russians, well it doesn't matter when you're on the left, uh, because on the left, uh, they have these mythologies they have to believe, and they can't accept that Hillary Clinton, the wife of a former president, a former senator herself, and a secretary of state, was a bad candidate. Uh, What they must tell themselves as they curl in the fetal position and mutter at night is that uh, she was a wonderful candidate, a wonderful, wonderful candidate, and uh, that she... Lost because the Russians stole it. Pay no attention to her failure to go to Wisconsin. Pay no attention to her failures to go to parts of of Michigan. Pay no no notice to her not going to western Pennsylvania. This is a myth the Democrats have to believe. And now it is translated into Hillary Clinton accusing Tulsi Gabbard of being a Russian agent, uh, which does nothing but help Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, In the Democratic primary, here's David Shalane, the political director for CNN. It's not as if uh, it's unthought of uh,
3: what Secretary Clinton was saying, apart from the Russian asset piece, about how Republicans may try to woo Gabbard to their team in some way or utilize her separation from the rest of the Democrats in some way in the 2020 race. Um, Again, I just think that when you throw something out there like that without evidence, it's hard to sort of figure out what the next step is other than it gives Gabbard a platform now.
2: It does give Gabbard a platform. Platform, and Democrats are, are hopping mad at Hillary Clinton over this, but Hillary Clinton has internalized the mythology the Democrats they themselves created about the Russians interfering and trying to find someone in this election. the selection. The president went after Hillary as well. I don't have time to get into the audio just yet. We will on the other side of the break uh, about what the president says about Hillary Clinton, who, by the way, Democrats are thinking maybe we need to get her in the race. May, maybe it's time for a rematch. Uh, Mono a Mano. <laughs> Clinton Clinton versus Trump. Uh, the, the Democrats are trying to tell themselves things. One of the other things they're trying to tell themselves is that Trump is Hitler. You know, when George W. Bush was, the Democrats really have a fixation with calling their opponents Hitler. Um, I, I have oftentimes in the past referred to George Bush as George Timmy Bush, Hitler, Halliburton. The Democrats were convinced that he was uh, a, a pawn of Halliburton. And akin to Hitler. And, and now they're going after Donald Trump as Hitler. The, these are the things, the mythologies they tell themselves, they stare in the mirror and, and suggest to themselves that they are superior to the Republicans because of these sorts of things. But I don't know that it's going to get them very far with the voters.
0: Other trade deals that we've done, we've done South Korea, which is a fantastic deal for us. Turned out even better than we thought. Uh, South Korea was a terrible deal. The person in charge of that particular deal, Hillary Clinton, if you've heard of her, she's the one that's accusing everybody of being uh, a Russian agent. Anybody that is opposed to her is a Russian agent, so that's a scam that was pretty much put down. Uh, Tulsi, I don't know Tulsi, but she's not a Russian agent. I don't know Jill Stein, I know she likes environment, I don't think she likes Russians. Uh, if she does like them, I know she's not an asset, she called her an asset of Russia. Uh, these people are sick there's something wrong with them but uh, I think that uh, Tulsi Gabbard probably got helped quite a bit by this stir. I think we were helped because it shows for two and a half years we end up winning I had to go through two and a half years if she would have done this earlier people would have realized what a scam it is everybody's a Russian or a Russian agent or a Russian asset
2: I mean The president is making sense there uh, that, yes, Hillary Clinton refers to everyone these days as a Russian agent. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is Jill Stein is the president is uh, you've got um, Democrats out there now pushing back on her about Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Even Bernie Sanders, who would know a Russian. (laughs) Bernie Sanders says, nope, nope, she's not one of them. Uh, Not communist enough, and so Sanders is pushing back. You've got uh, Elizabeth Warren, some on her team. Elizabeth Warren has not herself directly said it, but uh, some on Elizabeth Warren's team also pushing back on this, Uh, but these are things Democrats tell themselves, uh, which is unfortunate. By the way, um, this hour of the show, and and I did not do this earlier, and I should have, uh, First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan, is the sponsor of the program. I, I should have done it when I was talking about taxes and, and corporations. First Liberty, Georgia, it's a building and loan. It's it's not a bank. Uh, It's run by my friends, the Frost family. If you're a small or a mid-sized business and you want to become a big business and you need access to capital and you don't want to wade through the bureaucracy of a bank, go to First Liberty Building and Loan. Let them help you. It's firstlibertyga.com is their website. Tell the Frost family that I sent you. Uh, They've been great supporters of the show, and I want you guys to support them. It's firstlibertyga.com. Uh, First Liberty of Georgia. Thank you to them for sponsoring this show. Uh, So Tulsi Gabbard is one of the myths that the Democrats are are telling themselves, the the Russian agency thing. Some dismissing it, Hillary Clinton buying into it. But there's something else the Democrats are doing that I frankly think is far more disruptive right now in the way they are pursuing Donald Trump. And that is Donald Trump is a Nazi. Steve Schmidt Work for John McCain, a liberal, Steve Schmidt is, now at MSNBC where he can reveal just how liberal he has always been.
6: He has destabilized the region and he sent a signal to all of our adversaries all over the world, which is this. Now is the time to make your move because the United States is in retreat. The US led liberal global order that emerged out of the second world war that was architected by FDR Trump is dismantling it. What you heard was rhetoric today that could have been straight out of the 1930s from the era of isolationism that led to the world's greatest tragedy. And what came after that was the United States filling the role as the world's indispensable nation. And we are clearly deeply in an hour of retreat on that front. And we don't know what the consequences of that are five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, but we will be feeling it for a long time.
2: Yeah We'll be feeling the consequences of a long time. It's Donald Trump is is bad. Donald, you know who Donald Trump is like? Well, Beto O'Rourke puts it a little more explicitly in all of these things first the Russia bit
3: now You've accused President Trump of being a Russian asset yourself. Uh, do you have any evidence of that
2: as a candidate in?
7: 2016 he asked on a stage for all the public to see for Russia to find Hillary Clinton's emails. We know that, that Russia followed suit that very day, agents began to track down Hillary Clinton's emails. We saw him as president on that stage in Helsinki, Finland, next to Vladimir Putin, defending the, the leader of Russia that had invaded and attacked our country instead of the intelligence community here in the United States. We know that he lied to investigators, obstructed justice, pressured other witnesses to lie in the investigation to determine you know, Russia's- l- Let me in- let
2: me just just pause right here that, again, this is a lot of this mythology by the Democrats.
7: And his administration's culpability in what happened to our democracy. And then we've seen him follow with President Zelensky of the Ukraine, and now with China. So, so beyond the shadow of a doubt, and for everyone to see uh, clearly in black and white, this president has broken the law and has taken the side of Russia instead of the United but States. But
3: are you suggesting he's getting orders from Moscow?
7: I'm suggesting he's working in the interests of Russia and defying
2: the interests of the United States. Uh, mythology, mythology, but it lets him sleep well at night. Well, now he's moved on as well to the Hitler comparisons, uh, much less subtly than people like Schmidt.
3: Is that not going too far to make a comparison between the president of the United States and the Nazis? Find me
2: a better analogy
7: of another leader of a Western democracy describing all people of one religion as inherently defective or disqualified or dangerous. And that's what the president has done when it comes to Muslims, seeking to ban all Muslims from this country, repeating the lie that Mexican immigrants pose a a violent risk to this country, calling them animals and predators and rapists and criminals, asking four women of color elected by their constituents to Congress to go back to their home country and having an almost Nuremberg-like rally where people are chanting, send her back, uh, or inviting the kind of violence based on the racism that he's inspired. Uh,
2: I think Beto's brain is broken. And by the way, this all came from a Beto conversation with Al Sharpton about Donald Trump.
7: President Trump perhaps inspired by goebbels and the propagandists of the third reich seem to employ this tactic that the bigger the lie the more obscene the injustice uh the more dizzying the pace of this bizarre behavior the less likely we are to be able to do something about it and so i'm so grateful that not only is the house moving forward with impeachment but that the public really began to rise up when the president sought to enrich himself by hosting the g7 summit at one of his own properties
2: Yep. It, you know, this is, it's, it's fascinating to me to see uh, Beto O'Rourke going down this road. I, I'm starting to wonder if Beto needs a well check. I, 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 does someone need to check on Beto O'Rourke and make sure he's okay? He's descending, it seems, into madness. He's bought into the democratic mythology and the democratic mythology is leading him astray. You know, some of the other mythology we have from the Democrats is, is that Facebook is helping the Russians steal the election. You know, it, it's amazing. Facebook is now, uh, if Facebook is bad. Facebook is a bad guy. According to the Democrats now, Facebook is is at fault for everything back. I, I'm old enough to remember when the Democrats were enamored with Facebook. back in 2008 and 2012, uh, particularly 2012, as Facebook really grew, uh, the Democrats ran a series of flattering stories about how the Obama administration was tapping into the data of Facebook to mobilize voters in a way Republicans could not compete with. You had what's his name? Um, oh, what was his name? Uh, Eisen, Sasha, Sasha Eisenberg, I think, uh, wrote an entire story on democratic data operations. And really all it was, was stuff that, uh, if you knew anything about campaigns and this, by the way, this was a tip off that, uh, reporters who cover campaigns, know Jack about campaigns. Um, all this book did and all this coverage did by this guy about the Democrats using data was how, campaigns on both sides for years had micro-targeted voters to turn them out. It's just now they had a new resource to be able to do that, and Facebook was one of those resources where you could go in and you could say, I mean, for example, this is very easy to do. Uh, We do it with, with ad targeting for this here program. Find all the people in a certain area who watch Fox News and like Rush Limbaugh Uh, And the odds are you will find someone who likes the show or or Ben Shapiro and and, uh, add some names and narrow the pool, uh, narrow the radius of, of location where you want to find people. And you can micro target people who might be open to you because they're open to these things. Facebook is a very robust ad platform. Anybody can go in there and do it with an ad account. Uh, It doesn't just have to be a campaign. Anyone can do it. General Motors is doing it. Johnson & Johnson is doing it. Walmart is doing it. All of these online uh, athletic apparel companies are doing it that you see all over over Facebook. Uh, They're all doing it. And they're all using the platform in a way that Democrats can use the platform. And that the Democrats did use the platform in 2012 that they got so right. And then Donald Trump beat them in 2016. And oh my goodness, Some Russian outfit spent $20,000 on ads on Facebook. Therefore, the Russians control Facebook and and Russia stole the election via Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg, evil, antichrist. That's where we are. Now, I got concerns with Facebook. I got concerns with my privacy on Facebook. I got concerns with how I can look at something on Facebook and then start seeing ads pop up all over the place for stuff. I got concerns. But I don't think they're evil. I don't think they're a malignant force like the left now does. The left would be fine with Facebook if Donald Trump had lost the election. Someone would come out with a flattering story about how Hillary Clinton's campaign used technology on Facebook and won the election, and everyone would love Mark Zuckerberg right now. But he's the bad guy because Donald Trump won. And if you didn't stop Donald Trump, if you weren't actively involved in opposing Donald Trump, then you're bad. And because Facebook dared to allow them on the platform, Facebook is bad. Now, Republicans have their own concerns with Facebook. Josh Howley been a very big critic of Facebook. I disagree with him on some things. I agree with him on some other things. And listen, l- let's take Google. By Google's own logic, Google is a company whose own employees say it is important to have minority voices shaping the algorithm on Google so that Google's algorithm can find and display uh, the data and the information relevant to those communities. Based on their own argument, shouldn't conservatives play a role? Because otherwise, I mean, my guess is that they're okay with conservatives not having their data displayed. I'm guessing they're okay with conservatives being shut out of the algorithm because Google employees are pretty hostile these days towards conservatives, much more so than any tech company save Twitter. Google employees are very hostile to conservatives. But if Donald Trump loses next year, It will not be because Google censored Donald Trump. It won't be because Facebook censored Donald Trump. The fact is there's so much information, there is information overflow, it's going to be real hard to blame a tech company because of a candidate. But the Democrats are trying. What the Democrats can't acknowledge, what they can't accept, what they can't admit is that Everybody knew Hillary Clinton and nobody liked her. Which is why you had so many stories come out about how people who know her really like Hillary Clinton. This is a warning sign for Elizabeth Warren, by the way. Uh, there are constantly signs uh, out there that Elizabeth Warren is not very likable. And one of the biggest signs is that we're getting the same press stories from people out there who know her. that People who know Elizabeth Warren, they really like Elizabeth Warren. They love her. El- She's so funny behind the scenes. These are the stories they ran about Hillary Clinton. If you've got to tell people that behind the scenes the person is likable, uh, the default presumption needs to be that in public the person is not likable. These are facts they tell themselves. And people should be concerned about these things. Pe- people should be concerned uh, particularly if you're a Democrat. And by the way, we'll get to this. There's a big story in the New York Times that uh, the Democrats are starting to look for other candidates. They're not impressed with their current crop of candidates. Now, these were the same stories that the Republicans were running in 2012 and, and 2016. Uh, that is, there anybody else out there we could find? In 2016, of course, they had like 2,000 Republicans running, and they still weren't happy. And they wound up with Donald Trump, who dominated everything. Uh, But the Democrats are there right now with uh, all of these candidates on the left. They want someone new. Maybe Hillary. Maybe. Maybe the Russians will find them a candidate. You know, other myths that the Democrats tell themselves these days just just contradict science. Uh, There is a story. I want to get to it and spend a little more time with it later. A father in Texas sued to keep his seven-year-old child from going through uh, transitioning um, the, the child has been diagnosed. Apparently a doctor mother went to somebody who said that her child has gender dysphoria. So the mother now wants to help the seven-year-old transition from being a boy to a girl at seven at seven. And you would think you could find a bipartisan coalition to say, Hey, before puberty at a minimum before puberty, we should not be allowing children to take hormone therapy to keep them from getting to puberty or help them transition to another gender because of the long-term effects, particularly when when they reach puberty, their body's going to change. And we know there is ample evidence out there that kids sometimes outgrow these things. But nope, nope. A judge has ordered the father to stand aside and give up visitation rights so that the child can transition. In Texas, by the way, in Dallas, Texas. Don't say this can't happen here. It's happening in Texas, for Pete's sakes. But Democrats really do believe by faith, and it is a by-faith mythological belief. They can say that Jesus is, is a mythological sky god, and it is a myth he rose from the dead. Uh, they are entitled to say that. I think they are wrong, but no one can dispute the science is not on their side when it comes to transgenderism, and except by faith they believe these things. By faith the Democrats believe that you are born gay or straight, but you get to pick whether or not you're a boy or a girl. By faith they believe that. By the way, there was a huge study the New York Times sought to downplay that shows that overwhelmingly it is environmental factors that uh, contribute to whether someone is gay or straight. Uh, that there may be some genetics to it, but overwhelmingly it's environmental factors. Uh, You notice that story has not gotten a lot of traction once it was initially reported. It is by faith they believe these things, though. It is by faith they believe abortion is a women's health care right as opposed to killing a child. It is by faith they believe these things. These are the mythologies of the Democrats. It is the mythologies that shape their public policy. It is the mythology that guides them in life. It is the mythology that shapes their politics. And by the way, as politics becomes their religion, their religion is based on mythology, Which means that if the Republicans actually do have the facts on their side, there's no reason to be angry about losing. Just expose the mythology for myth. You know, in thinking about the mythologies that the Democrats are telling themselves to keep themselves going, um, one of the mythologies they're telling themselves is that this country is inherently bad. You know, Beto O'Rourke, if nothing – and again, I, I still think there's a, a well-check. Somebody needs to a well-check on Beto. Beto is out there telling everyone that the country is inherently racist. And then, of course, there's the climate change mythology as well, that we're all going to die unless we embrace the Green New Deal. Here's Beto O'Rourke giving a speech yesterday. Because despite my obvious pride in the role that our community plays in
7: the
8: civil rights history of America – Despite what I think we represent to this country and to the rest of the world, about the genius of America, being able to integrate people who come from everywhere and call this country home, trying to do better for themselves and their kids, but also seeking to do better for all of us, we are still connected to the rest of this country. As Dr. King reminded us, each of us is caught in an inextricable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. This country, though we may not be in El Paso, Texas, is still racist at its foundation, at its core, and throughout system.
2: this system. Listen w- to the crowd here going wild for Beto saying that this country is racist. Though El
8: Paso is one of the safest cities in America, it's still inherently violent. 40,000 gun deaths just last year in America. No other country in the world this kind of carnage. So, though that may not have been our experience in El Paso over the years that I was growing up or the years that I've been raising my children, that is the experience of America, and we are still connected to this country. And that experience is going to find us sooner or later. And on August 3rd, it did. That is the cost and the consequence, not just of Donald Trump. But this false, fabricated, fake fear, that he wants us to feel
2: about one another. Yeah, 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 the country's bad. Everybody's terrible. Uh, Donald Trump got elected because of the racism in this country. Uh, th- this is mythology from the Democrats. You know, by the way, one of the other things that one of the other myths that they're telling themselves, there's actually some polling out that helps them do this. That's what they do. They take polls and tell themselves what other the polls show, uh, you know, public opinion polling on candidates is actually pretty doggone good. Um, and that's why Republicans do need to be concerned about next year, because contrary to, to the mythology on the right, one of the myths on the right is that polls are always bad. Polls, actually, they're pretty decent. Uh, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote in 2016, just as the polls said, um, although by a less lesser margin than the polls showed, by about a percent point less, uh, it's still shaped out. But uh, one of the myths that the Democrats are telling themselves based on polling is that there is nothing anyone can do to shake evangelicals from the president. Christians are so entwined with Donald Trump these days um, that that evangelicalism is just a wing of the Republican Party. Look at the polling. And they do not stop to consider that, hang on a second, uh, you've got major Democratic Party candidates saying they want to take away your guns, they want to take away your religion, they want to shut down your churches unless they pay taxes, they want to bankrupt uh, your kid's private Christian school, they want to shut down Christian businesses, uh, they they want to raise your taxes, they want to take away your health care. All of these things will, of course, oh, and let's not forget abortion. Uh, the, the democratic governor of Virginia actually did say he wanted to allow a woman to give birth to a child, let that child be comfortable while they decide whether or not to kill the child. He actually did say that. And the Democrats deny he said it, even though he said it. And it's a mythology that evangelicals are locked in with Donald Trump. It is the reality that they are. As long as the Democrats continue to go so far left of the radicalism And the Democrats would rather blame Donald Trump and Jesus than accept they got some serious problems in their party. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Happy to take your phone calls. Phone lines actually are open. You can call. I need to run a hypothetical by you. I was actually thinking about this last night. Uh, I took my. The the boy needed to go to soccer practice. And I was sitting out on the practice field and I was actually staring at my. I, I go to the games, but I didn't have any time to even just mess around on the internet. So I, he was at practice. I sat out there with my wife and we were visiting with some of the parents and I was staring at my phone a lot. And I, I saw something, a story about it. Is the governor going to make his appointment soon in the Senate? Uh, And it got me thinking, before I get to that, I want to tell you that this hour of the show is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. The Frost Family, tremendous good Christian conservatives in Georgia. If you're listening, it doesn't matter where you are in the country, they can do business with you. You don't have to be in Georgia, uh, anywhere in the country. And they make loans to businesses, and they're not a bank, so they don't have a bank bureaucracy. They can do it themselves, so you should go check out the Frost family. Uh, See what they can do for you. Go to FirstLibertyGA.com. They support the show. I want you guys to support them uh, as thanks for helping me get this off the ground. FirstLibertyGA.com. So I'm sitting on the soccer field, and it dawns on me, What if Isaacson stuck around? Johnny Isaacson is the senator from Georgia. Uh, For those of you listening outside of Georgia, Johnny Isaacson is the United States senator from Georgia. He's the senior senator, and he is in poor health. He has Parkinson's disease. Uh, He has fallen over a number of times. Uh, He has become very, very frail, and he signaled his time is up. Uh, He is not going to serve through his term. He is going to retire from the Senate uh, January 1st. And I, I really started thinking, hmm, I know that Johnny's health is frail. And a Senate trial would be burdensome for him. Now, why would a Senate trial be burdensome for Johnny? Well, a Senate trial would be burdensome because it runs from noon until the end of the day, six days a week. And if you're a senator under the rules of the Senate, you got to be in there. Now, I'm sure they could accommodate him, but, but I started thinking about this. Uh, whoever Brian Kemp, Georgia's governor, appoints, and Ge- under Georgia law, the governor of Georgia will be able to appoint someone to replace Johnny Isaacson. Uh, under Georgia law, that person will stay on the ballot until, or will stay as the senator until the next general election, which would be in November of 2020. Uh, so you will have David Perdue on the ballot, uh, who will be the Senator, and then you will have an election to see who will fill out the term for Johnny Isaacson. That person uh, has the unfortunate pleasure of rel- running like they're in the house of representatives where they'll be on the ballot in November, 2020 as an affirmation of the governor's pick or a rejection of the governor's pick, in which case voters will choose someone else. And that person, whoever it may be, will stay on the ballot for two more years to finish out Johnny's term. By the way, speaking of House Representatives, uh, prayers for Senator Doug Collins, uh, who could not be in Washington uh, the, over the last couple of days, including voting on a measure to censure Alan, uh, Alan, uh Adam Schiff, the congressman who's in charge of the House Intelligence Committee. The Republicans put forward a measure to censor Adam Schiff. It fa- uh, failed, and people were pointing out, oh, Doug Collins sponsored it, and he wasn't there. He's got an alien family member uh here in Georgia, so prayers for him and his family. Um and Johnny Isaacson is is ailing. And he wants out. But I wonder if this is under consideration. Now Isaacson uh, he's not retired yet and he could walk back his retirement. Uh I don't know that people would object. Uh Democrats certainly would. I, I don't know that um that Brian Kemp or the Senate itself would be upset about it if Johnny Isaacson stayed for the impeachment trial to avoid a sticky issue for Republicans. So I, I can tell you something on that front. Uh, I told you guys last week this was going to happen. There were a lot of people who l- laughed at me and said, I don't have good sources. And, you know, everyone always tells me I don't have good sources. And, and here I come breaking news ahead of the press. And then the press reports the news and, and they totally ignore it. I told you people here last week, that the House of Representatives would not be pushing impeachment by Thanksgiving. It would be Christmas when they push out impeachment, and that would put a trial in the Senate in January. And people said, no way, no way. They've got to have this done by the end of the year because of the Iowa caucuses. And the response from the, the senior Democrat I talked to was, that, I don't care. They believe this is a, a important process. They believe it's a constitutional process, and they believe that they've got to dot every I and cross every T. Right now, they say they're in a uh, fact-finding mission, and then they're going to have a formal impeachment process after Thanksgiving. They're going to have a vote in the Judiciary Committee sometime around Christmas, and then they'll carry it over to the Senate for trial after the first of the year. They don't care about the Iowa caucuses. If anything, this will highlight the, the gravity of the situation by having Democratic senators who should be in Iowa out there uh, in the Senate. They they think it's a big deal if you hear barking in the background. That's my dog who is right outside the door. The Democrats are taking this seriously. Whether you or I like it or not, whether we think there's anything impeachable or not, they are dotting I's and crossing T's. The rhetoric right now from Republicans is very much the same way Republican rhetoric was uh, with Nixon, the very much the same way uh, Democratic rhetoric was with Bill and We'll see where this goes. But one of the big issues is if Johnny Isaacson steps aside in January as he plans and the governor picks someone to replace Johnny Isaacson then the question on the campaign trail will be one question. What do you think of Donald Trump? What do you think of impeachment? And it puts that person in a very awkward position. As opposed to, let's say, the, the Senate convicts Donald Trump, which I don't think is likely, uh, but the Senate convicts Donald Trump, well, they can say, well, um, they, I, I think that the Senate did what the Senate did, and that's for the Senate. I think David Perdue was there and saw all the facts. I've been on the campaign trail. Uh, I have not paid attention to the, all the facts. David Perdue did. He voted not guilty. I stand with David Perdue. Or they they finding not guilty? David Perdue saw all the facts. David Perdue hold all the, heard all the evidence. I trust David Perdue. Having them there before the Senate, though, it suddenly becomes an issue. Because if the person, if, if it's a Republican nominee and the Republican nominee says something along the lines of, well, I think we should respect the process. Well, but that kind of deviates from the line right now, does it not? Because the line is that the Democrats have a disrespectful process. So if you're a Republican who says we need to respect the process, what you're really saying is uh, impeachment might be legitimate and that puts you in an awkward spot. But if you say impeachment is illegitimate, uh, then that's a foregone conclusion there as you're campaigning and you're, you got to deal with the swing states and and there the swing districts outside Atlanta. You got to deal with uh, the areas like Roswell and Sandy Springs and Gwinnett County and Cobb County, uh, even the Alpharetta area. There's some polling there that that's troublesome for the president. You got to deal with that. But if Isaacson stays, you don't have to wade into that immediately. It gives you some time to get on your feet. It gives you some time to process. Now, uh, the Isaacson calculation can be, frankly, that, that he's, he's old, he's tired, he's not in good health, it's time to go. Uh, speaking of being um, old and not in good health, Jimmy Carter fell and broke his hip. Uh, prayers for him and for his wife. They just set the record for longest-lived presidential couple. Uh, good for them. Um, President Carter is recuperating in the hospital. Also, Mark Richt, uh the former UGA coach, uh, prayers for him. He had a heart attack. Uh, I have to tell you, I kept up with Richt um, when he was the Georgia coach and even when he went to Miami that first year. But then I didn't keep up with him very much. Uh, Miami's just not a team I keep up with. I don't keep up with the ACC. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Georgia Tech. I don't. I didn't know he had left. I, I mean, seriously, I, I, I didn't know. And I started hearing people say, former former Miami football coach. I was like, wait, we, we did this apparently a year ago. Um, he's now a football commentator. Good for him. He can make big bucks as a football commentator now. Uh, but prayers for him. Uh, seriously, what a great guy. Uh, really, really is a good guy. Uh, really valued the character of his team and uh, was willing to, to take hits uh, on his team uh, because of, of disciplining players because of character issues, so good for him, uh, and prayers for him as he recovers from his heart attack. Now, all this gets back to Johnny. Nobody knows who the pick is going to be. This is a big deal in Georgia right now because there are a lot of politicians out there who would like it to be them. And now there is a uh, word coming that Harold Melton, who is on the Georgia Supreme Court, may actually be interested in the job. Now, where is the governor, by the way? Uh, so for those of you who haven't paid attention to this, you're, you're out of the state. Uh, you, you don't know. Um, the governor in Georgia decided he wasn't going to play the backdoor games. Uh, that can get politicians in trouble, what he decided to do was to open the process to anyone and everyone who wanted to be senator. And a bunch of people have applied. Well over 500 people have applied for the job. Now, uh, they will weed this out. and, And the way it works is that, listen, if the governor just did a backroom process, there would be someone out there who got their feelings hurt. And that person would go to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or a local news channel somewhere in the state, and they would grumble that, I can't believe the governor didn't think of me. I held a huge fundraiser for the governor. I just don't understand why I'm insulted. The governor decided instead of going that route, he would make everybody apply for the job. And if you didn't apply, he didn't have to consider you. And that essentially called the bluffs of the people who wanted to be considered, but didn't want to put their name out there. That eliminates a good number of people who are in elected office, but also eliminates a good number of people who are not. And no, it will not be me. Buddy of mine texting me, listening to the show. No, no, no. In fact, a buddy of mine who is in the United States and had texted me and said, why don't you put your name in the hat? I'd support you. I said, you would be the only one. There's no way. Plus, I make more money than a senator makes. (laughs) Um, So the governor, by doing this, has been able to weed out a lot of people. But now there's one name that is circling. Greg Bluestein has this uh, story in the AJC. Georgia's top judge met with Governor Kipp to express interest in applying for the Senate seat, adding a new wrinkle. Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton spoke with the governor last week to discuss the possibility but has not submitted a resume for U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson's seat. Melton would be one of the highest profile officials competing for Kemp's favor if he decides to apply. He would also be one of the most unconventional contenders given his tenure on the bench and lack of political experience. He's a former lawyer. He worked in the attorney general's office. He served Governor Sonny Perdue. He was his executive counsel. And then Governor Perdue put him on the Supreme Court. Uh, He remains close to Sonny Perdue. He became the uh, court's chief justice. Um, And so he's got backing from Sonny Perdue, who is uh, widely attributed as, as pushing the president's endorsement of Brian Kemp it would be an intriguing pick and he's also black see i, I say that last because a lot of people want to elevate oh, we'd have a black candidate no no no, no. You, you've got uh, harold melton uh, Harold Melton is a, the chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. He is well-liked by Republicans. He is institutionally, philosophically a conservative person. Uh, his uh, judicial opinions have shown him to be a conservative. He doesn't have campaign trail experience. The question is, can he raise money? Well, he's an elected official. The, the Supreme Court in Georgia is an elected entity. So uh, he's got experience campaigning to in that degree, although it's a different style of campaigning than the partisan campaigns that most of us are familiar with. He has the ability to raise money. Uh, We certainly know he has the ability to raise money. We have seen his ability to raise money. There are a lot of Democrats who like him. And it would be an intriguing pick. Now, I I personally, I I got a friend of mine who is white. I don't know Harold Milton very well. Uh, Jason Navarrete has applied. He's the Paulding County Board of Education, which sounds like a a small-time deal, but uh, he would be the first Puerto Rican senator. He's of Puerto Rican descent, so the governor of Georgia would be able to expand the Hispanic uh, base of support for himself. He came very close to 40%, like 39.8%. Hispanics are the fastest-growing community in the state, uh, and there is no data out there that shows that um, black voters will vote for the Republicans because one of uh, a black person is a Republican. Tim Scott in South Carolina regularly picks up votes from black voters, but that doesn't translate into support of the Republican Party in South Carolina. But, but, but let's acknowledge something. If the governor of Georgia appoints to the United States Senate a black man from Georgia who is also the second black supreme court chief justice in Georgia, that would be a big freaking deal. And it would also have a it would make it a very hard case for democrats to attack him at a time where democrats themselves have no black candidates running. John Ossoff, for God's sakes. John Ossoff is running as the minority candidate. I kid you not. He's out there uh, trotting out John Lewis's name everywhere he goes, and the other Democrats are starting to take offense to this. Teresa Tomlinson's campaign blowing him up for this. The Democrats went from Stacey Abrams in 2018 galvanizing Democrats across the country for her campaign, although Beto stole her thunder. And now there's this white guilt factor that that keeps Stacey Abrams elevated. But nonetheless, uh, in Georgia, Stacey Abrams was able to motivate black voters to go to the polls. And now the Democrats have exactly zero black candidates running. Michael Thurman from DeKalb County may get into the race to try to galvanize people. But it'd be very interesting against Harold Melton, chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. And Georgia city candidate, of course, being running for a partisan office, he would have to step down. That would also give the governor a pick on the Georgia Supreme Court, which he might like. It's an intriguing pick. Can we not admit? Well, if you're in the metro Atlanta area next month, uh, traffic's going to suck one day. The president of the United States is coming for a fundraiser in November. Meanwhile, the Democrats are headed into their big fundraiser in Georgia. They will have uh, Stacey Abrams and a host of Democratic candidates, I'm sure, coming. Um, She's going to headline a fundraiser. Uh, to bolster the Republican efforts to fortify Georgia, as the Democrats are also raising money. Um, the Democrats made big gains in the metro Atlanta area in 2018. Lucy McBath, of course, won the 6th District. Democrats are out Republicans in the 7th District. And uh, I'm trying to find details of exactly where it is. It looks like it is uh, TBD, to be determined, as to where the fundraiser will actually be, but they're certainly taking it seriously. The president also headed into North Carolina here soon to raise money for the Republicans there. You know, the Republicans in the legislature there uh, are holding on, but uh, the headwinds are against them in North Carolina. Uh, Tom Tillis' numbers do not look good for reelection, election and uh, the Republican polling in North Carolina doesn't look good. It's becoming problematic for them Uh, as the state moves towards the Democrats. And and this is is starting to panic Republicans nationwide uh, that in key swing states six months ago, it looked like uh, there was no way ever the Senate would ever be up for grabs. And now it's looking more and more like the Senate may very well go to the Democrats because of a number of seats I mentioned yesterday. North Carolina, Arizona, Iowa, Maine, in addition to Colorado, it's looking deeply problematic For Republicans right now, they are concerned about these states. North Carolina be one of them. They are not concerned about Georgia right now, but they are concerned about the Georgia House seats. Uh, They're concerned about the state legislature in Georgia. Interestingly enough, uh, the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Texas is retiring. Uh, He's caught in scandal in Texas. The Speaker of the House of Representatives in Texas uh, was recorded uh, by a friend of mine, actually, who has been on my program, Michael Quinn Sullivan. He's the head of Empower Texas. Uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan is a conservative group that pushes the uh, Texas legislature to the right. They have a, a media reporting wing for Empower Texas. And they wanted to give that wing press access. The Speaker of the House refused them access. Uh, but in a recording, Michael Quinn Sullivan recorded the conversation. With the Speaker of the House in Texas uh, said he would. It was a quid pro quo. <gasps> the Speaker said he would give Michael Quinn Sullivan's group access to the floor of the House if they would target some Republicans who were squishy and also problematic for the Speaker. In other words, uh, there were some moderate Republicans that uh, Empower Texas doesn't like, and those moderate Republicans were problematic for the Speaker of the House in Texas, so he asked them to target those guys and spare some of the other moderates. Well, uh, Sullivan recorded all of this. It's a quid pro quo, which is prohibited in the Texas Constitution, that members of the legislature cannot ask for things uh, in exchange for favors. And, um, or cannot grant things in exchange for favors. So now there's an investigation by the Texas Rangers and he's out. Um, makes you wonder about the situation here in Georgia as the Republicans continue to hang on to David Ralston, despite his scandal. And that's going to come back. And now Ralston signaling he's going to run for re-election after people really thought he wasn't going to do it and they wouldn't have to have a fight. Well, it looks like they're going to have to now we'll see. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to talk about John Ossoff for a moment, uh, if you'll allow. Uh, John Ossoff is the uh, Democrat running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia against David Perdue and he's not the only Democrat running, although he is beginning to suck the oxygen out of the room for the other candidates, and that's starting to make them mad. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson and people tied to her campaign and some Democratic activists are really upset that Ossoff is uh, trotting out John Lewis everywhere. John Lewis is the civil rights icon uh, who uh, himself... Is, is someone who has called the president illegitimate and he has participated in stirring the racial pot in Atlanta, uh, for a long time. And I think it's probably worth recognizing that he has done this. Uh, and John Ossoff wants to use him. Now I, I want to play you a clip. This is from a municipal election. Uh, well, I shouldn't say municipal county election, uh, the county election for Fulton County, Georgia. This is an advertisement that went out um, by the uh, Democratic candidate who ultimately won, and it includes John Lewis, the congressman, civil rights icon, who was beaten uh, marching in Selma with uh, Martin Luther King, Shirley Franklin, then the mayor of Atlanta, and Andrew Young, the former Maryland, I want to play you this ad. Um, I, I try to play this ad all the time to remind people that yes, John Lewis is a is a role model for many, a civil rights icon, indisputably a, a hero to the civil rights movement, but also uh, uses his legacy. Uh, to weaponize the racial issue against Republicans in ways that I think should be out of bounds, and yet he gets a pass because of his, his history. Understandably so, some would say. But I want you to listen to this because this is relevant to the attacks on John Ossoff right now.
6: This is Congressman John Lewis.
1: And I'm Mayor Shirley Franklin.
6: And I'm Andy Young. On November 7, we face the most dangerous situation we ever have. We faced. This is John Lewis. We faced the most dangerous situation we
2: ever have in Fulton County, Georgia. That that is the county uh, where Atlanta is. The most dangerous situation. Now, this is from several years ago. This is about a decade ago. The most dangerous situation we have ever faced was happening. In Fulton County, Georgia, what is that most dangerous situation ever faced? I think fighting off dogs and water hoses in the 60s. Oh my goodness, it, it is it's worse. Whatever it is, it is worse than fighting off the dogs and water hoses in the 1960s. This is John Lewis, the congressman. John Lewis. There is some massive existential threat in Fulton County, Georgia. It is worse than anything they've ever seen before. It is worse than than the dogs in the streets and the water hoses during the civil rights era
6: was bad imagine if we sit alley by and let the right-wing Republicans take control of the Fulton County Commission wait
2: what what
6: what hang on what
2: And I'm
1: Mayor Shirley Franklin.
6: And I'm Andy Young. On November 7th, we faced the most dangerous situation we ever have. If you think fighting off dogs and water hoses in the 60s was bad, imagine if we sit alley-by and let the right-wing Republicans take control of the Fulton County Commission.
2: This is the civil rights icon and congressman who thinks Donald Trump is illegitimate. That right-wing Republicans... In charge of a county commission in the 2000s is the worst thing that has ever happened. The
1: efforts of Martin and Coretta King, Hosea Williams, Maida Jackson and many others will be lost. That's why we must stand up and we must turn out the vote for the Democrats on Election Day.
8: And especially for John Eves, for Fulton County Commission Chairman unless you want them to turn back the clock on equal rights and human rights and economic opportunity for all of us,
6: vote for John Eves as Fulton County Chairman. Your very life may depend on it. This message pays That's John Lewis
2: at the end. Your very life may depend on voting for a Democrat. Republicans in charge of something is worse than the dogs and the water hoses in the street. That's a congressman saying that. That's a congressman saying that. And John Ossoff, who is running for the United States Senate in Georgia, has that man's endorsement. And indisputably so, John Lewis is a hero of the civil rights movement, and indisputably so, he is beloved by Democrats in Georgia. But let's put some perspective on this. He also uses that position to say outrageous things. Democrats in Georgia are hopping mad that John Ossoff, who they have always kind of viewed as an interloper, is coming in now and using Lewis everywhere he goes. Uh, Ossoff was a staffer, a low-level staffer for John Lewis. Uh, John Ossoff has has magna- amplified his his resume more than he should, according to a number of Democrats, that he's he really isn't all that nor a bag of chips in his resume, uh, and yet he uh, consistently plays himself up as some uh, famous documentarian who has brought down uh, rogue regimes through his documentary coverage, and that he was some in-depth staff-level person for various members of Congress, including Hank Johnson, who thought Guam was going to tip over, and and John Lewis, who believes Republicans in charge of anything is worse than dogs and water hoses in the streets uh, during the days of Selma. And he's dragging John Lewis's endorsement everywhere he can, and the Democrats are starting to get really upset about it Um, because you've got a number of candidates who are in the race already. They have been raising money and Ossoff is now using his star power to jump back into a race he had gotten out of and they're not very happy. Greg Bluestein again at the AJC, Teresa Tomlinson's top aide, accused John Ossoff of co-opting John Lewis by invoking his endorsement shortly after the two candidates uh, competing to challenge David Perdue appeared at a Saturday event. Let me be clear. Every question should not be answered with John Lewis was hit by a brick 55 years ago wrote Kendra Cotton, Tomlinson's campaign manager, referred to the 1965 attack against Lewis in Selma, Alabama, that triggered an extended back and forth with Leslie Small, a Democratic operative and former Lewis aide, who questioned why Cotton would criticize Ossoff for promoting the endorsement. It's a reference like in any job interview and shows your values, wrote Small, who's neutral in the race. We all need one in our corner. I do it all the time because I'm beyond proud of his story, made my story possible. And then Kendra Cotton accused John Ossoff of quote trying to wear a black man's narrative and work like a winter coat. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um wow. They're 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 doing this they're doing this on their own. They're going to have a nasty fight in this primary, but here's the reality. Teresa Tomlinson has not been able to raise the money she wanted to raise. And in her failure to raise the money she wanted to raise, she ceded the race to other people to try to come in. Now, Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkston is also trying to raise money and he's having a real hard time. I think he raised less than a hundred thousand dollars. And the reason he's having a hard time is because he's too far left and most people recognize now it seems that uh, Ted Terry won't be able to grab people's attention and galvanize people to his side because he doesn't have the he doesn't have the policy positions that resonate So that leaves us off. Uh, There's Sarah Riggs Amico, but I I think Sarah Riggs Amico probably, I mean, she may be able to catch on. She was the Democratic lieutenant governor nominee just uh, last year, but her company bankruptcy and her lame efforts to try to attribute that to Donald Trump, I don't know, are helping her per se. Um, So she's going to have to do something that leaves us off. And the Democrats need to try to to put a lid on this in large part because of the um, because of the Isaacson seat. So you've got Ossoff, Tomlinson, Amico, and um, Terry running for the nomination against David Perdue. The only person who's come out so far against uh, whoever the Isaacson now annou- uh, person is is. Matt Lieberman and the Democrats are out to get Matt Lieberman. Let me read you this, Uh, in, in roll call. They point this out. Uh, roll call is the, uh, newspaper Capitol Hill. If you want to leak something so that people in Washington, D.C. pay attention to it, you leak it to roll call. Roll call gives you all of the ins and outs of what's going on in Washington, D.C., who are the lobbyists? Who do they represent? What are the, what's the dirt? What's the hit jobs? You either put it in the hotline or you put it in the, in roll call. And guess what? Let me read you an article from roll call. U S national security experts of all political stripes agree. Chinese tech behemoth ZTE is a threat. The company is a leading candidate to provide new markets with 5G networks, a lightning-fast wireless service that will support advanced technological implication. A ZTE 5G network, U.S. national security exports Warren, would also be able to spy on its users and send purloined data directly to the Chinese Communist Party. Nevertheless, ZTE's best-known hired gun, former Connecticut senator and 2000 Democratic vice presidential nominee Joe Lieberman... Is now acting as an informal advisor on a U.S. Senate campaign. His sons, Matt Lieberman, is running in a special election to fill a soon to be vacated Senate seat in Georgia and is leaning on his father to help him become the first Democrat in two decades to win a Senate race in Georgia. Americans are increasingly skeptical of elites profiting from their political connections, with many tiring of political dynasties, and with Washington getting tough on Beijing, a lobbyist for a Chinese company, potentially an espionage tool for the Chinese Communist Party, advising his son's campaign highlights the complications of contemporary politics and national security. That is from Patrick Kelly in roll call. This my friends is what we call a hit job. Um, Very, very interesting dynamic here. Now, Patrick Kelly covers campaigns, but I gotta tell you this, um, this, this story reads like the Democrats are out to get Matt Lieberman. They are livid with Matt Lieberman. Now, for those of you who are listening around the country, let me set the stage. Why does this matter to people outside of Georgia? Georgia is going to have two Senate seats on the ballot in 2020. They're going to have the David Perdue seat, which should be there, but they're also going to have Johnny Isaacson's seat because Johnny Isaacson is stepping down from the Senate early. Now, the Democrats are targeting Georgia. Georgia is in their top 10. No, 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 I'm I'm sorry. Uh, Georgia is number 12 for top-targeted states. It's outside the top 10, but it's number 6 for for Donald Trump, which is a warning sign that the Republicans are nervous that Democrats may have a shot in Georgia. So you're going to have the president on the ballot, and you're going to have two senators on the ballot. Donald Trump won the state by 5 points. Brian Kemp, two years later, only won the state by about 2 points. Uh, but the Democrats were able to mobilize voters to turn out in 2018 like they did in a presidential level. Uh, de- Republicans will turn out at a presidential level in 2020, which is why, while Democrats are singing the praises of George and how viable it is, uh, their actions suggest that it really is not as important to them or as uh, wanted by them or they think is much in play by them as they would suggest publicly. But... They think they may have a shot. In the worst case scenario, what they want is they want one candidate, one or two candidates who can run in this race in a jungle primary with Isaacson. See, uh, the Democrats for David Perdue's seat will have a standard primary where the Democrats will have an election and you will vote and then one of those people will make it out of that primary into the general election against David Perdue. With the Isaacson seat, because of the nature of it being a special election, it will be what's called a jungle primary, where everyone piles on top of each other into the primary. And the thinking goes, if Republicans consolidate around Brian Kemp's pick, then all the Democrats will be split between a million different candidates and the one picked by Brian Kemp may very well get the nod without a runoff. Well, the Democrats were working very hard behind the scenes to twist arms and keep people out of the race. They want one or two people in the race. Michael Thurman, who is the uh, commission chair, I think in DeKalb County, former labor commissioner of the state, well-liked by Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats want him. They really want Michael Thurman. They think they need a black person on the ballot. They look at Stacey Abrams, and you know what? They finally concluded it wasn't her being a progressive that helped her. It was her being black that helped her. And so they want a black person on the ballot. And they don't have anybody. Nikema Williams, who is the chairwoman of the Democratic Party in Georgia, is thinking about it. There are a couple of DAs around the state who are thinking about it, but they really want Michael Thurman, who's won statewide before. They want that advantage. Well, here comes Matt Lieberman, who decides he wants to run. And he didn't ask the party. He didn't bend over backwards for the party. He didn't try to woo the party. He didn't go through the song and dance that everyone else is going through. He just said, you know what, I'm running. I'm a candidate. Here's my ad. He put in a lot of money to produce a a funny ad that announces him as the candidate. He's come up with a second ad now, a takeoff on Governor Kemp's uh, Jake ad with guns, where he admits he doesn't own a gun. And so now the Democrats have to do something because he's shown himself to be a candidate who can raise money and who has access to money. And they're livid because they don't want a crowded field. And their thinking is that if Matt Lieberman gets in and he's got this money and he gives people a run for the money, well, then that's going to cause a free-for-all in this race where they're trying to limit it to one or two people. And they don't think it's going to be Lieberman and, say, Michael Thurman. They think if Lieberman stays in the race, it's going to be Lieberman, Thurman, and a bunch of other people too, except Stacey Abrams. So they got to come up with a pressure point to try to get him out of the race. That's why this story sounds like it's a Democratic hit job. Not a Republican hit, a Democratic hit. The Democrats themselves are feeding this information to reporters. They want it known on Capitol Hill. Why? They want Chuck Schumer to see it. They want Schumer and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee to see it. They want them to understand there's trouble in Georgia and they're doing what they can to stop Matt Lieberman. The Democrats are going to eat this poor guy up. And we will enjoy watching it and covering it right here on The Eric Erickson Show. Yes, you should. And if you want to call the program... By the way, I I feel the need to apologize. You may not notice this, but I do. And I'm becoming really sensitive to it. Uh, So... uh, Yeah. When I was a kid, I lived in Dubai. And that was during the 80s. um, More than... Uh, we we were there from 80 to 90, from 5 to 15. I grew up in Dubai, and we would go back to rural Louisiana during the summer, and the only dentist anywhere near us was a total, in, 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 my sisters and I were convinced nuts, um, a quack dentist. And he pulled teeth of mine, and he shouldn't have. And over the years, they've caused me more and more problems. And I finally noticed several years ago, it felt like my bottom teeth were falling backwards in my mouth. And I went to the dentist and the dentist said, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's happening. Uh, you're going to need an orthodontist work. So I went to the orthodontist and uh, decided on inv- using Invisalign and I'm not wearing them during the show. And I normally do, but on the days where I don't occasionally I can make S sounds and I whistle while I'm speaking it's like, you know, the 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 parodies you see of the little kids who lose their front teeth and they whistle every time they speak on stuff. And every once in a while, when I get on a roll, I can hear myself start to whistle when I talk. And I feel deeply embarrassed by like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm a little kid again, uh, which I never even did that as a little kid. But it's happening. I, I will say, for those of you who are wondering, the Invisalign system is great. Um, I can wear them normally. And talk on. I don't have them in right now. um, If only because I ate right before I came on air, which I normally don't do. But I was my schedule was a little bit hectic this morning, Um, and is so I don't have them in uh, because I got to go rebrush my teeth after eating um, to get them in. But I'm a big fan of the system. Uh, They definitely, your first couple of days in a pair, so every, essentially what they are, they're plastic molds, they put little attachments on your teeth, uh, different teeth, depending on how they want to push your mouth around. Uh, Metal braces pull your mouth into position, and the process typically doesn't take as long uh, as it does with Invisalign. But it's also harder for you to talk. If you're in talk radio and you have braces, um, it's, it's tif- difficult for you to articulate. And being half Swedish, half Louisiana, I already have a difficult enough time articulating half the time. Uh, so I didn't want to go that way. So I went with Invisalign, uh, which they put glue little things on some of your teeth and they push your teeth into place as opposed to pulling your teeth into place. So it's a slower process. Um, your teeth definitely hurt for a couple days after being in, in one of these Invisalign things, but they give you a stack of them. And every week you take one out and you put the new ones in, you take them out when you're eating and otherwise you brush your teeth, you put them back in. Uh, in fact, I've been brushing. I've got a Quip toothbrush. Um, I, I am a big fan of Quip. Uh, trying to get them to to uh, do live reads on the program. Uh, but I've got a Quip toothbrush, and uh, my teeth have never been cleaner because i got a brush every time I take them out and put them back in, and I like them, but I'm at this point right now where my teeth are aligned in such a way that if I talk too fast to make a lot of S sounds, I whistle. And it bothers me more than it bothers you, I'm sure, but I'm deeply, like, mindful of this fact. Okay, We got to shift gears when we come back. Uh, We need to get into the Democratic worry. They really don't like their field. They really want new candidates. Hello, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Are you ready to laugh with me? Welcome. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877 973 This hour is sponsored by Dynamic Money. Uh, my friend Chris Burns, who has guest hosted now for me here, uh, he literally actually is uh, my wife's and my financial planner helping us uh, pay off our debts, build some savings, uh, structure our finances and and think responsibly about it. Neither of us really grew up learning these skills. He has them, and that's what dynamic money does. Um, if you need someone to sit down with uh, and he's not commissions based, so his advice is actually gonna be good advice, not advice that gets him wealthy. um he's gonna he's just fee based and he can help you reshape your portfolio, your portfolio. If I can talk, he can help you rebalance your debts, uh, refinance, do all that stuff. Essentially, he's a primary care uh, financial physician who makes sure that your life insurance guy and your mortgage guy and your investment guy and all of them are actually working for you. I highly, highly recommend him. Christian and I are going through the process right now uh, with him of, of looking at our debts and our income and the goals we have in life, and retirement planning, and putting it all together, uh, and he just has given us a great peace of mind, and he will, he and his team will too. If you need them, DynamicMoney.com is the website, and thanks to them for sponsoring the program. Uh, the Democrats need some peace of mind; they are not happy right now with their field of candidates, and uh, no joke, uh, this is not this is not a, a made-up thing. It is a really big deal among the Democrats right now that they don't like any of their candidates. And panic is starting to set in as they try to find someone else. And this is an establishment party leader thing. Uh, They're even floating the name of Michelle Obama right now. Or maybe get Hillary Clinton back in. Or Sherrod Brown from, from Ohio who resonates with blue collar voters um this is from jonathan martin jonathan martin you should know his background he started out at national review uh he leans to the right ideologically although i definitely think being in the mainstream media has shifted his mind on some things i don't think he's a trump fan uh he tries to keep his politics out of it he's a pretty straight reporter even if i sometimes disagree with him Uh, When a half dozen Democratic donors gathered at the Whitby Hotel in Manhattan last week, the dinner began with a discussion of which presidential candidates the contributors liked. But as conversations among influential Democrats often go these days, the meeting quickly evolved into a discussion of who was not in the race but could be lured in. Now, let's, let's keep this in mind. A half dozen Democratic donors, that means six for those of you who are in Atlanta, Would Hillary Clinton get in, the contributors wondered. And how about Michael Bloomberg, the former New York mayor? One person even mused whether Michelle Obama would consider a late entry, according to two people who attended the event, which was hosted by the progressive group American Bridge. It's that time of the election season for Democrats. Since the last debate, just anecdotally, I've had five or six people ask me, is there anyone else? Now, if five or six people, maybe it's the five or six people who were in this room. Lee Daughtry, a longtime Democrat who has run two of the party's recent conventions, says with doubts rising about former Vice President Joe Biden's ability to finance a multi-state primary campaign, persistent questions about Senator Elizabeth Warren's viability in the general election and skepticism that Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana can broaden his appeal beyond rich white voters. I added the rich. It actually says white voters, but it's rich white voters. The Democrat leaders are engaging in a familiar right, fretting about who is in the race and longing for a white knight to enter at the last minute. It's a regular, if not quite quadrennial tradition for a party that can be fatalistic about its prospects. And recall similar Maalox moments in 92, 2004, and in the last primary when it was Mr. Biden who nearly entered the race in October. But the mood of alarm is even more intense because of the party's hunger to defeat Donald Trump with just three months to go before Iowa, the patience with finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright among the current crop of candidates. There's more anxiety than ever. I can see it, I can feel it, I can hear it, Mitch Landrew, the former New Orleans mayor, said of unease. He said Mr. Biden is best positioned to defeat Mr. Trump but called the former vice president's fundraising a real concern. Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Bloomberg have both told people privately in recent weeks they thought they could win. If they thought they could win, they would consider entering the primary, but that they're skeptical there would be an opening. Former Secretary of State John Kerry, who associates says has wondered aloud whether he should run, has found it hard to watch Mr. Biden's missteps. Another Obama administration official who weighed a campaign at the start of the year, former Attorney General Eric Holder, is considering a last-minute entry. Mr. Brown, who nearly entered the race earlier this year, that would be Sherrod Brown of Ohio, said the pressure on him to reconsider from labor leaders, Democratic officials, and donors has become more frequent. Devolve Patrick, the former Massachusetts governor, has also weighed a campaign run before deciding not to. He said he, too, had been nudged by friends to reconsider. Mr. Patrick suggested an 11th-hour bid was highly unlikely and had a message for increasingly angst-ridden Democrats. Everybody needs to calm down. It's early. It's so early. Except they're not impressed with the field. They're not impressed. Frank Brunei, who has taken to the pages of the New York Times, he's a New York Times columnist and regularly laments uh the party. He regularly laments the situation. He regularly laments uh the the situation um that uh democrats find themselves in he regularly laments donald trump and the rise of trump and he hates conservatives he went on cnn and had this to say this morning just a little while ago this happened by the way
7: not just the donors who are concerned you have two front runners who are both extremely flawed and extremely vulnerable joe biden has seemed very rickety on that debate stage he's not raising money the way he should he's spending too much money doesn't have cash reserves and elizabeth warren is to the left of a lot of Democratic voters and a lot of general election voters. So I think the the panic here is real. What's sort of silly is the
2: notion that there's someone out there in the Mm -hmm. forest who's going to solve all of the problems. Yeah, there's probably not uh, going to be another candidate entering the field. There's probably not. Elizabeth Warren is out there right now um, working it with teachers in Chicago. They're on strike and she's out on the picket lines to with them.
1: Stand with every one of the people who stand for our children every day. Everyone in America should support you in this strike. And the reason is because when you go out and fight, you don't just fight for yourselves. You fight for the children of this city and the children of this country.
2: The children. She's doing it for the children, folks. She's out there on the picket lines in Chicago with the children. Uh, but, you know, you, you heard Frank I say it, she is to the left. She's to the left of most voters. And at a time where the media is obsessed with Donald Trump's lies, Elizabeth Warren is a regular liar herself and she lies about the most um innocuous things in fact she's telling this story again
1: i got to finish my four-year diploma and become a special needs teacher um it was that was my chance i taught special needs i loved it it was work that i loved down to my toes I had four to six-year-olds. I can still remember their faces. And I probably would still be doing that work. But by the end of the first year, I was visibly pregnant. And the principal of the school did what principals did back in those days. He wished me luck and hired someone else for the job.
2: That's not exactly true. And we know it's not true because she wrote about it in her book, in her memoirs on how she and her husband decided... That she was pregnant and maybe she didn't need to be a teacher and maybe she should stay home with the child. And we now have the documents from the school system where they asked her to come back the next year. She made that up and yet now she's taken to regularly saying it. And, you know, the, the media response on this is, well, we know this happened in the 70s to women, so it must be true with Elizabeth Warren. Never mind that Warren herself has contradicted the story. And then there's the health care issue with Elizabeth Warren.
4: That's right, John. This is a significant announcement from Senator Warren. Uh, this is a candidate, as we've talked about a lot on your show, who has a plan for really everything except for the issue of health care. On the issue of health care, she has said from the beginning that she is with Bernie Sanders when it comes to uh, health care, that she is fully behind uh, Medicare for all. And that is why she has uh, not put out a plan of her own on the issue of health care, but we saw her sort of run into some trouble with this strategy, right? Uh, Particularly last week at the CNN New York Times debate where she was asked over and over again, how are you going to pay for this plan? Uh, Will middle-class taxes go up under this plan? And we saw her uh, time and time again avoid answering that particular question and pivoting instead uh, to the question of uh, total costs. She said over and over again that total costs will go down for the average. Average American under under uh, Medicare for all, Uh, but I think we saw that politically this sort of tactic became politically untenable.
2: Yeah, it did. In fact, who's coming out against her? Amy Klobuchar. She does not want to be on the wrong side of Amy Klobuchar. She may be eating salad with a hairbrush if Amy Klobuchar gets too mad at her.
1: Well, I'd like to see how she's going to pay for it. I think it's really important. Uh, that given this president has added trillions and trillions of dollars of debt, uh, that we'd be straightforward with the American people about how things are going to be paid for. It's that simple. And I am surprised that we haven't seen it yet uh, because, you know, I think if she had a good answer, we would have seen it by now. But I look forward to seeing
2: it. You would think she would have that answer. Well, now she stepped in it with even more Uh, You know, Elizabeth Warren, she wanted to run for president um, last time, and she didn't out of respect for Hillary Clinton. One of the things on on the campaign trail, but just as a random aside here, I'm a big fan of having contested primaries. Now, I don't like the primary system. I actually think that the party should be able to select their nominees. Uh, But as far as as pushing candidates to actually uh, engage with people, primaries have a way of shaping candidates and helping them find their weaknesses and either fix them or they lose. And Elizabeth Warren has not been tested because all eyes have been on Joe Biden. Warren has successfully, with friends of the media, and let's be honest about this, the media has tried to make Elizabeth Warren happy. She's been trying to make Elizabeth Warren happen. I mean, the the entire media is rallied around Elizabeth Warren. It's, It's kind of embarrassing to watch just how in the tank the media is for Warren. Well, now they finally got what they wanted. Elizabeth Warren in the spotlight and she's having a real hard time staying there because she is going so far left on so many things. The other candidates piling on, on her fatal weakness. Bernie Sanders is willing to admit that there would be a huge middle-class tax increase for Medicare for All, but his argument is that they would save so much money on their health care costs, they would never know anyway. Of course, the issue is they would only save money if they get sick. Otherwise, they're, they're out a lot of money. Elizabeth Warren isn't willing to make that case. She's had a chance. She's claiming that she will uh, raise taxes on the wealthy, We now know that wouldn't generate enough money. She's doubled down on the claim. Well, now she's adding to it. She's threatening Israel.
6: Question about Israel. Will you make American
3: aid conditional on a freeze to settlement building? Yeah.
1: Right now, uh, Netanyahu says that he is going to uh, take Israel in a direction of increasing settlements. Uh, That does not move us toward. A two-state solution. It is the official policy of the United States of America to support a two-state solution. And if Israel is moving in the opposite direction, then everything is on the table. Everything is make- on the table. Everything's on the
2: table. Okay. Everything's on the table with Israel. You know she's she's not going to side with. The Israeli And, you know, it, so there's, an ele- there's been an election in Israel. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, has been unable to form a government. They have a parliamentary system there. So now his chief rival uh, is looking to uh, form a government. And a lot of Democrats are excited that this is a defeat for Benjamin Netanyahu. And the reality is um, that the party that has stood up to Benjamin Netanyahu and has a chance to build a coalition has very similar ideas. Uh, they just don't like Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, they view him as corrupt and, and they want to be conservative on a lot of national security issues in Israel. So it's not really a win for them there. And she now is, is in this weird spot where she's having to go out and be to the left of Barack Obama himself on Israel. These sorts of things are going to come back and bite her. And the Democrats understand it. They understand that the Democrats themselves are not nearly as liberal or progressive as Elizabeth Warren. But there's an underlying sentiment. Did, did, you, did you get the sense of it? And what I've been saying, what I've been reading, the articles, the audio, there's an underlying sense here you need to understand. There's kind of a tacket recognition in all of these conversations that Donald Trump is going nowhere, that impeachment will fail, and that even with impeachment, the Democrats are still worried about trump welcome back it is eric erickson here let's see happening now newt gingrich is on the view of all things let's see if i can get this audio pulled up this is newt gingrich on the view talking about the president wanting to send the g7 to the Doral golf course
3: yeah but here's the here's the point not just okay but this is is what i don't understand about the president Mm -hmm. uh this was just a dumb idea I mean, don't don't try to defend it. The idea, I mean, the idea that you could say, oh, hi, we're going to have a meeting of seven major countries on my golf course yes, and not have everybody else in the country go, what? I mean, it was just one of those things where... So who's around?
2: E, that's kind of surprising to see Newt Gingrich on TV. Saying, Of course, he's going on The View to say it where Donald Trump will never see it. But I wonder if someone in the White House who's nursing grievances against uh, Newt Gingrich will show it to him. I do have to say, I kind of wish Newt Gingrich was around uh, Donald Trump right now because I think he gives better advice than Rudy Giuliani. There, there's actually some interesting polling out That uh, Rudy Giuliani is now the least popular he has ever been. And Nancy Pelosi, of all things, is now the most popular she has ever been. Y'all, I got to tell you, this one of the most bizarre things in the country right now on polling is that uh, depending on your political position, things that you used to like, you could now oppose. And things that you used to oppose, you can now like, depending on who the personality is you like. And that's emblematic of a deeply flawed political system, Uh, like the Romney situation. I've I've got a piece up today that that's getting some traction on, you know, know, I, in 2008, uh, I supported Fred Thompson when he ran for president. He's a friend of mine. Uh, And when he dropped out for the longest time, I didn't pick. And then between Romney and McCain, I went with McCain uh, for two reasons. One, it kind of felt inevitable at that point anyway, but two... Uh, I thought that Romney and McCain were both squishy, uh, but McCain was honest about it, and Romney was posing as a conservative when he wasn't. And then in 2012, I supported Rick Perry. In fact, I had a big conference in Charleston, South Carolina, and Rick Perry was there, and I um, supported Rick. He announced he was running at the event. It was a big thing, and then he had that debate. Oops. Uh, And ultimately, I I said I'd support Romney, but I, again, thought Romney was squishy, and he was proving in 2012 he was taking positions opposite his 2008 positions uh, and and clearly was was squishy. But Romney has always consistently been a, a values person a moral person, a, a man who values character. Frankly, I think Romney's loss in 2012 set us on the course for the GOP going with Trump because you had Bush, McCain, and Romney, all three of whom never really fought back against really nasty media lies. And by 2016, the Republican base, having seen what they did with Romney over Russia and seen the Candy Crowley, Benghazi stuff in the debate, they're like, to heck with this. We're going with the guy who will get in the gutter and beat the crap out of him. And they went with Donald Trump, who does just that. And he won. And so the, the, the reinforced feedback loop is that this sort of behavior wins. And we want to win because the other side is out to get us. They're out to get our guns. They literally are. They say so. They're out to get rid of the tax exemptions of our churches and our, our Christian businesses and schools and nonprofits. They literally are. They say so. And on and on it goes. Meanwhile, you got Romney out there still saying, well, character counts. We need to be good people and nice. And the Republicans are saying, well, we tried that and, and we lost. Well, I I give Romney credit for being consistent on this sort of stuff, and so I I don't actually mind him speaking up on the president. I don't mind Romney saying he's concerned because that's who Romney is, and I kind of appreciate an authentic candidate out there who is saying something. You can imagine him. If the same stuff was true with Obama, he would say it. He's saying it with Trump now. You can dislike Romney all you want, but I got to tell you, I've been pretty consistent on all this stuff over the years. And people who were blowing me up in 2012 for saying Romney wasn't conservative enough are blowing me up now for saying that the president isn't as conservative as he claims. And i getting attacked from all sides on this stuff where I'm just telling you what I think on this, and so is Romney. That doesn't mean impeachment's going anywhere, though. We'll discuss that when we come back and get into the turkey situation that's heating up. Okay. Before I get into the Turkish situation, I got to laugh at this, uh, man, the smug liberals on social media, those bigots in South Carolina, uh, they're referring to black voters in South Carolina. Um, there's been an internal focus group conducted. This is McClatchy. Uh, now you should know McClatchy has run a number of false stories, uh, related to Michael Cohen going to Prague and whatnot. Um, so full disclosure, it is a, a media outlet that has a history of publishing some not true things, but this, uh, they got enough people on record here. I think we can say for sure that this is true and in internal focus groups conducted by Pete Buttigieg, and you know, I've been saying Buttigieg, but it's apparently Buttigieg. Um, uh, Buttigieg is, this is actually the reason he's not going to get elected president is because no one's going to know how to say his name for four years. Um, Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign this summer reveal a key reason why he's struggling with African-American voters. Many see him being gay as a problem, his sexuality. The 21-page report conducted by the Benenson Strategy Group with black Democratic South Carolina voters in mid-July and obtained exclusively by McClatchy found that, quote, being gay was a barrier for these voters, particularly for the men who seemed deeply uncomfortable even discussing it. Their preference is for his sexuality to not be front and center, end quote. While the report stated that his sexuality was not a disqualifier for these voters, some of the focus group participants questioned why Buttigieg even brought it up, That's not my thing, but I wouldn't want to know that as a candidate, said one female participant. Too much information. I'll go ahead and say it, said a male participant. I don't like the fact he threw it out there that he lives with his husband. (gasps) The 37-year-old South Bend, Indiana mayor is openly gay and married to his husband, Chaston. While Democratic elites and donors have celebrated his surprise candidacy, this in-depth survey presents a rare look into the unvarnished views of a major voting bloc in the party and the steep hurdles Buttigieg faces in making inroads with it. After three 90-minute sessions with a total of 24 uncommitted black voters in Columbia, South Carolina, aged 25 to 65, just one, a woman over 40, said they, wait, Is that good grammar? Just one said they, or shouldn't it be just one said she? Just one, a woman over 40, said she was considering voting for Buttigieg. Conversely, all but one said they were considering voting for Joe Biden described in the report as a clear and dominant front runner in the state that holds the fourth democratic nominating contest. It's hard to underestimate the power of the Obama association with these voters. Some of the focus group participants wondered whether foreign leaders would accept a gay president. Of course they will. Uh, one of the G seven leaders is, is gay. Um, and, and goes to all the conferences. Um, Listen, here's the problem, is that uh, Pete Buttigieg continues to be a thing rich white people like. Uh, Rich white people love that he's gay. They love that he's young. They love that he was in the military. Uh, They love that he's a democratic progressive mayor. They love that he can quote scripture and throw it in the faces of Christians, which he does. He's an Episcopalian, and he throws it in Christians' faces regularly um, and, and claims that he twists the biblical scripture routinely to try to justify uh, abortion on demand and gay marriage and things like that. Uh, this doesn't go over well with black and Hispanic voters. And this kind of gives you an idea of the bubble that so many in the media are in people in the media love Buttigieg. They absolutely do. If you are a 20 or 30 something reporter, in Washington or New York and you are white, you like Pete Buttigieg and you wish he would be president because he's he's your age demographically, he speaks multiple languages, he comes across as young and smart and he's good looking and charismatic and he's gay and and he, so it, it just shows diversity, yay diversity and tolerance and on and on and on. But Hispanic and black voters in this country are deeply socially conservative, even if they vote Democrat, even if they vote for progressives. They're socially conservative, philosophically conservative on these things. Many of them go to church and they don't like it and they're okay with it unless it becomes a defining characteristic. It's very much like abortion. So Wendy Davis uh, ran for governor in Texas and I labeled her abortion Barbie when she ran for governor in Texas and it stuck. I'm quite proud of the fact that nickname stuck when she ran for governor. And the reason it stuck is because there was a lot of polling. When did she run for governor? It would have been 2014. Yeah, 2014, I think. 2014, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, I was very proud of the fact uh, that the, the moniker stuck because I had been made aware of polling in Texas From young Hispanic voters, 18 to 25 year old Hispanic voters, that they would not vote for a candidate if that candidate's number one issue was abortion. And it didn't matter if they were pro-life and it didn't matter if they were pro-abortion. They did not want to vote for a candidate whose number one characteristic was abortion. They, they did not want to deal with that issue at the ballot box. They did not want to deal with that issue on the campaign trail. They did not want to have to confront that issue. Overwhelmingly, by the way, these people showed themselves to be pro-life, that they supported restrictions on abortion, including more restrictions on abortion than white people wanted, but they didn't want to deal with it as a candidate. They wanted a candidate who would talk about jobs and economics and not a candidate who would talk about abortion. And so by calling her abortion Barbie, it helped define her as that was her one issue. And it worked. Uh, Wendy Davis, I I will not say that I myself, by labeling her abortion Barbie, caused her to lose, but she certainly became defined by that issue. And then she struggled to get traction everywhere else. She had a real hard time except raising money with Hollywood liberals. And Hispanic voters rejected her in favor of Greg Abbott. Now, by the way, uh, Wendy Davis wants to run for Texas, uh, for the Congress in Texas against my buddy Chip Roy. And he's got way uh, twice as much cash on hand as, as her. But she's out there prospecting, trying to build her name ID up again, trying to raise money. So it makes it look like she's raised more money than him, when she really hasn't. Uh, but she's trying to come back, and, and abortion is still her thing. By the way, congratulations to her. Uh, and I don't mean this disparagingly. She did get married yesterday or over the weekend. Uh, she put that up on Twitter. Um, always happy to see people uh, commit to marriage. And she did, uh, but uh, she's still a progressive Democrat running for Congress. And so I oppose her, more so because she's running against a very good friend of mine. But these socially conservative issues, the the media has a hard time picking up on these. This issue with Buttigieg being gay. I mean, the the issue here in the focus group, and if you actually read into the data, and and McClatchy uh, highlighted a lot of this, is that they don't really care that he's gay. They just don't want it in their face. And they know that if he's the nominee, it's going to be in their face. He's going to put it in their face. Reporters are going to put it in their face. There are a lot of people out there who just don't want stuff rubbed in their noses. Um, it, it, the media, for example, I, I saw somebody uh, put this up on Twitter yesterday. and It was a fair point. The media constantly complains about Fox News. The media constantly complains about um, about talk radio. Now they're complaining about uh, Ben Shapiro and, and Facebook because uh, the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's website, has so much news on the Daily Wire, is, is on Facebook. It's um, Some of the top shared information comes from the Daily Wire and then other conservative sites, the Donald Trump campaign, National Review, Breitbart, the Federalist, you name it. Uh, they, they get a ton of shares on Facebook. Of stuff, And now the media has decided that Facebook is bad because so many conservatives are using it. It's like talk radio. It's like Fox news. It needs to be stamped out. And someone on Twitter pointed out, this is, it's so crazy that conservatives have to put up with left wing views on a daily basis in our faces, on our TV shows, in our books, in our movies, on the news, in the newspaper in our daily existence conservatives are confronted with liberalism and progressivism on an hourly basis and yet progressives are outraged that they might see a family member share something on facebook that they disagree with and decide is, and they decide is conservative it's a deep level of intolerance it is um that is, that's, that's, that's problematic, but it's where we are as a country. Uh, the left is increasingly in a bubble in the country and we, we see this in these conversations. We see this by, uh, they're rallying to, uh, people like, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. And uh, their willingness to believe things like, well, you know, th- let me play this. This by Beto O'Rourke. I, I didn't get a chance to play this audio. He gave this. This is in the same speech where uh, America is a ra- fundamentally flawed racist nation. He also has this to say, echoing another talking point from the left, uh, a- another bit of mythology from the left. And I know that
8: many here are tempted to feel this fear as well. The fact that we have the greatest set of challenges before us—those that I've described or challenges like climate change which if it continues unabated, will consume the very communities in which we live, will undermine the ability to support human life on this planet, and the scientists tell us there are only 10 years left within which to act to make sure that we free ourselves from dependence on fossil fuels, fully embrace the renewable energy technologies and the high-skill, high-wage jobs that come along with that.
2: Yeah, that's right. We got 10 years left or we're all going to die. That That's essentially where, where he is. This is another fiction. Uh, if you weren't here in the first hour, I spent a lot of time on mythologies. The left is telling themselves to keep themselves sane these days. And they're essentially buying lies. Climate change is one of those lies. And this plays very well in progressive circles. You go to progressive enclaves where they've gotten rid of plastic straws in favor of pay. I mean, for God's sake, just go to Ted's. Go to Atlanta. Find a Ted's. Ted's, by the way, has some great, great food. Uh, my daughter, a 14-year-old, loves going to Ted's. She loves their uh, homemade milkshakes. She likes their cheeseburger. Uh, but she hates, we all hate, the paper straws that Ted's has had forever. And increasingly, other places are putting paper straws in, and they're garbage. But go to Progressive Enclaves, you're going to find that. They, they believe, even though the, in some cases, in, in yes, I'm not making this up in some places, in some cases, the straws come in plastic wrappers. The paper straws are in plastic wrappers. But they believe they're saving the environment. They believe these things by faith. It is becoming a religion. The mythology becomes a religion. And because the media buys into it, the media doesn't have a way to to push past it, while well, most people realize this. Uh, most people realize it doesn't work. Now, I gotta say, just as an aside, there's a we are we're living in a country that is increasingly post-Christian. And I don't think it's a coincidence that as we live in a country that is post-Christian, we're also living in a country that is post-truth. And I think that matters. Uh, I think the the two of them are joined together, post-Christian and post-truth. And there are a lot of churches that could push back on this, that they do have the way forward as the left gravitates towards politics as its religion and weaves mythology into the politics. I think there's an opportunity, frankly, for conservatives, not necessarily the GOP, but for conservatives to woo in some socially conservative voters from uh, the Democratic Party who reject the increasing liberalism on the left. And I think we see this in the data on Buttigieg and the like with black voters in South Carolina, there is a way forward. Uh, But the church in this country has got to do a better job of, of making inroads and reaching out to people and having conversations. So much of church these days is drawing in unbelievers into church. And and by the way, you, you should know philosophically I'm opposed to the idea of the Sunday sermon being the time to draw in new believers. Now, that's the place to go if you're curious about what's going on. Go to church and, and hear a sermon. But so many churches <clears throat> these days are scripted towards getting people in the door and, and giving them some sort of platitude from the pulpit where maybe they'll accept Jesus. And I don't necessarily think that that works so much. Uh, church is the hospital for the sinner, and it is the, the soul of the of the saved sinner who needs nourishment from the pulpit. But a lot of churches these days are doing a very bad job of getting out into their community. They've become very insular. And this is across Protestantism, um, but in evangelical churches that are doing very well, that Pew survey that came out, you couple it with the Barna survey, what you see is that actually evangelical churches are declining slightly in this country, but by and large they've got greater sustaining power than um, uh, Catholic churches and mainline churches. Uh, The Episcopals, the PCUSA, the Methodists, uh, the United Church of Christ and the like are, are falling off rapidly. And Episcopal, Episcopalianism, no, um, a, a Evangelicalism is holding its own in this country. But one of the things that people are finding is that they are increasingly, increasingly insular. It is, You're more and more likely to go to an unfriendly evangelical church in this country these days. And I think they got to got to break out of that. As Evangelicalism has internalized the idea that so much of the country is out to get them, and it doesn't help when you've got people like Beto O'Rourke on stage saying, we really do want to come get you. They've internalized this, and it's made them unfriendly to other people, and they actually do need to get out and have ministry, and and frankly, it is a way, and this, again, has nothing to do with the Republican Party, but of piercing the mythology on the left, where the mythology on the left becomes their truth. It's not the truth. It is their truth, and their truth is different from the truth. But you've got to actually seek the welfare of the community in which you live in order for people to give you the time of day. And a lot of churches aren't doing that. They could steer back the conversation in their direction if they engaged more in their local community. And not from a, uh, we think this is wrong and we want our city council to oppose this and we want this banned. But from the position of, hey, here are the poor people in our town and we need to go help them. Here are the people whose houses are falling down. We need to go help them. Show them that there's a different way. And they might come to the truth. But right now what's happening is that as progressivism moves towards politics as religion, they're co-opting the, their truth and the truth. They're merging them into something that's new, that's different, that's mythological, that's actually something very, very ancient and pagan but there is a way to penetrate this and and bring people back. Um, It's just churches have to play a role, but then churches say, well, well, this is politics and it's icky and I don't want to do that. Well, it's not really. It's about the truth as opposed to people's individual truth. There is real truth in the world and it needs to be shared. All right, I got to play this audio for you. Uh, Mike Pompeo set heads to exploding in Washington, D.C. in the CNBC interview where he was asked about the Turkish situation
8: no it doesn't change that doctrine uh at all um, but our interests are different today there's no doubt about the uh, fact that uh, the united states dependence on uh, uh crude oil products and other uh, petroleum products transiting the strait of hormuz is different than it was back in the 1980s that's that's a fact in fact uh it's also the case that as you hypo- as you uh, laid out asia is much more dependent on this region than the united states is for its primary energy consumption needs uh, but America's interest in the Middle East remain. Uh, our mission still remains there. Uh, we've just got a an alteration in uh, the nature of American interest in the region.
2: Uh, yeah, the president is he's respire, he's prepared prepared to take action on Turkey uh, if need be. And there are a lot of people out there saying, well, the president caused the situation and the situation has gone in the tank because of the president's decision to pull out. Well, yeah. Okay. Now he's having to respond. Um, you know, it, what's, this is actually one of the interesting things here on the Dural course and in the Turkish situation, have you noticed that Republicans are actually speaking out more than they have in the past I mean I I actually find that rather notable here that a lot of Republicans who in the past might not have spoken out are starting to speak out on some of the president's decisions part of that is because they're not necessarily scared of the president anymore in large part because they're not running for office anymore But part of this is because they're in a campaign season, and and this is going to be one of the things that Republicans have to come to terms with in 2020, is that uh, they are going to be in an election cycle, and some of these candidates are going to have to decide uh, if they want to stand shoulder to shoulder with President Trump or do they want to get reelected in their state because in some states it's not going to be very popular. Take, for example, let's just compare Georgia and North Carolina. States that adjoin each other, that border each other, that touch. Tom Tillis is running for re-election in North Carolina and David Perdue in Georgia. In Georgia, David Perdue is standing shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump. In... North Carolina, Tom Tillis is having to to get through a primary and privately some Republican strategists are a little bit concerned that that may hurt him in the general election because the general election polling for Tom Tillis among independent voters is actually pretty terrible. And you know who an independent voter is? An independent voter actually is a classification of a person. Independent voters are Republicans who are embarrassed to say they are Republican. And this goes back to the uh, McCain race with uh with uh Barack Obama there were republicans who were conservatives who did not like to be associated with John McCain they did not like him in 2000 they did not like him when he ran in 2008 and they decided they were independents now there have always been independents and independents have always been a more conservative group moderates tend to be democrats who hate the democratic party and independents tend to be republicans who hate the republican party And guys like Tom Tillis poll poorly with independents, while people like David Perdue play well. And so there's going to be a split on how closely they stand with Donald Trump. And the question is, will the party forgive them if it means keeping the Senate? So it means keeping conservative judges. We'll find out very soon. Elections are coming.